The title of this evening's talk is the, the Seamless Circle of the Parami of Generosity. <clears throat> and we'll begin with uh, a brief exploration of the paramis. <clears throat> so what is a parami? Paramis are the accumulated forces of purity within the heart and mind. Every mind moment that's clear, that's free of greed, hatred, delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our own heart and mind. One of the roots of the word parami conveys the sense of supreme quality. Paramita, which is the Sanskrit word, means going forward. So going towards or going forward towards supreme quality going towards perfection. Sometimes the word parami is translated as perfection. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed. And I'll just list them in Pali and English. Dana, generosity. Sila, virtue, ethical behavior. Nekama, renunciation. Panya, wisdom, virya, energy or effort, kanti, patience, saka, truthfulness, aditana, resolve or determination, metta, loving kindness, and upeka, equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, patience, and, uh, and the uh, accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort or energy, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen, they become very forceful and result in many different forms of happiness, many forms of contentment and a sense of well-being in relationship to the most basic, worldly, sensual pleasures, all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of an awakened heart, a liberated mind. The development, growth, and maturation of these perfections, these forces of mind and heart, help to counter the forces that cause us human beings such great suffering. 
everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead towards developing these qualities in our lives, in our heart, in our mind, aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important, not the real practice. This aspect of training the mind is an essential and powerful and necessary aspect of our practice of moving towards liberation. And as these qualities grow, deepen, and get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of mind and heart of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, of action, our way of being in the world. Conduct in its everyday worldly aspects of our way of being in the world. And these paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The second basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, the purity of understanding, insight both in relationship to everyday worldly life and wisdom, understanding, insight in the, of the deepest liberating kind. This second aspect of the perfections include the paramis of panya, wisdom, patience, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the Paramis are interrelated and so bring each other to light over and over and over again. Our practice itself, in its process, is the practice and process of purification, as I've mentioned in different ways uh, throughout the retreat. The practice, the path of practice that leads towards liberation, this this path of purification and process of purification. Samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight, and other specific practices such as all of the Brahma-vihara practices, metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and uh, upekka, equanimity, are all part of this path of purification. The development of the paramis organically, naturally occurs within the context of each and all of these practices. In light of the fact that uh, you all will soon be moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world and considering our everyday life here 
in this intensive retreat setting, bringing the paramis more into the forefront of one's daily life can be very helpful, very helpful and quite fruitful. It can be quite a potent aspect of our practice. The paramis are, of course, to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that they're something to work towards, something to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. So no greed, no hatred, no delusion, which of course without a doubt, is of great benefit for everyone, oneself very much included. Traditionally, the practice, development, and the gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. This evening, we'll look uh, fairly deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of the heart, the mind. And uh, beginning with a story. Some years ago, when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society, as the resident teacher for staff, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda, to this uh, temple, uh, the uh, Cambodian Peace Pagoda, which isn't very far from the Insight Meditation Society, and I'd go there to pay a visit to the Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may know of him. His name translates as Maha Great, and Gosananda, sound of bliss. Maha, as he was quite fondly called, was from Cambodia. And he's considered the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. And he's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and villages and refugee camps Uh, during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago now, at approximately 94 years old. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Maha Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare. A being with a truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. 
A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a, a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, uh, a sweet and a deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, <clears throat> I was taken into his quarters to say hello. And we didn't know each other very well, uh, and we hadn't actually seen each other for over a year. So I didn't know if he'd remember me. Being such an old man, there were uh, things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him uh, that evening, uh, the last time we had met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I, I burst out laughing, and I said, wow, it must be quite a nose. And he very directly and very sweetly said, it's a good nose. <laughs> During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, not too long after the uh, Colorado retreat that I <clears throat> taught with Venerable Mahagosananda, I visited uh, Venerable Gosananda at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather who uh, used to call me mom. And at one point uh, during that visit, I asked him why he called me mom, when in fact he was so much older than me. And his response was, we have all been each other's mothers at some point. So you're mom. So that day, mom and grandfather sat and we drank tea and laughed a bit and talked a little history about his life and talked about the three-month retreat that I was uh, teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked uh, a Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable's very favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart the mind, a gift he so selfishly offered simply through his being, or maybe more accurately, a gift he offered in just simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and then afterwards. My heart felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then on outward. an experience that would always continue, continue on beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back for all of the three-month yogis. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And so, as I've already mentioned, this evening we'll explore generosity. This quality really holding a special place and an opportunity for 
all of us in our formal practice and in our life as our practice. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're sitting here together this evening. So moving from a very recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda, or relatively recent, to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that uh, displays a number of paramis, uh, in particular generosity, along with virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular uh, telling of this uh, legend is adapted from the tale as told by the uh, Buddhist writer uh, Rafe Martin. It's said that many Mahakalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, uh, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to a small village, the small village of Amaravati in India and offer an evening of public talks revealing his dhamma, or his dharma, dhamma. (laughs) The villagers were very excited and uh, felt very deeply honored. And so to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through their village and then cover it with a fine piece of cloth. In the forest, just outside of the village of Amaravati, lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and much virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later time was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Sumedha's parents who were wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before, leaving him seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth. Neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No. I will leave this sheltered life and become an ascetic and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life of a hermit, eating wild fruit and wearing clothes of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. Within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a very bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. 
He sat for many days, blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the town. It's said that, seated cross-legged, he rose up in the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha, replied the workman, don't you know? The Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village. Well, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workmen with the road. And he picked a particularly swampy stretch of low ground to fill. He worked with a heart and mind filled with light and joy, repeating to himself over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha Dipankara and a great, soft, golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread, spread his bark cloth cape over the soft, wet ground, and then he lay down upon it, and he loosened and spread his long, matted hair, and he made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. Then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I am determined. Despite all of the difficulties and danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot, and looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made a resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. In many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men, and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill, fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. 
When he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. And after great exertions and near death, he will receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. With renewed strength and energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, (laughs) became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. The next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same and returned to the Bodhisattva, and then continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisattva Sumedha rose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose. It said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat, where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. We usually think of generosity as the practice of offering, but in its fullness, it's really bo- uh, both offering and receiving, a process which clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed, clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive the seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced and cultivated and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways. No matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. And my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area and with a very big and bright smile on his face thrusts a bunch of 
bright yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happen to be in China during my 46th birthday. And the friend that I was traveling with and I were in Shanghai, uh, staying in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I'd learned that in China, uh, the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experiencing some degree, actually a fair amount at first, of clinging and attachment, I decided to give my bracelet, my favorite bracelet, to this young woman for my birthday though a feeling kind of like a one-handed giver uh, during my consideration of doing this and then finally deciding to do it. Though when the time came to actually give her the gift, it was with both hands and with an open heart. And it was truly a joy at that point, though the process of getting there uh, was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And they finally all do, all the conditions do come together. But one week before the retreat begins, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism as I'm riding in his taxi. And just as I'm uh, getting out of the taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher uh, off the dashboard of his car and gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family members. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child in the circle. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice calls from outside the circle. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. The child is then led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. Quite a number of summers ago, forest fires raged in 
the Los Alamos Española area just south of Taos here in New Mexico. And hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. Almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. That the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. All of the conditions come together and so you both give yourself the gift of this precious time and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day by day as your retreat unfolds. Just for a moment now, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully, down the road, each of them holding a round begging, begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or father or older sister or brother and seeing this ritual, this offering, each morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness that's quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a natural part of your life. And from the Buddha, if beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and all of his nuns and monks lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. 
giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't so easily available in this country, which, at least in part, is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what is offered in support of a way of life. Nor do we regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. And, to the contrary, this retreat, this particular retreat, has been quite special and wonderful in this regard, with many meals throughout the whole month uh, generously offered as dana. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and accumulations of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations. To think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things, underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. And a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, written in 1980, from a book called Different Ways to Pray. And she calls this poem Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything, feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened bra. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. 
How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Actually, this poem was written in 1978 uh, when Naomi Shihab Nye was in Colombia. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactory and unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. I think that as a culture, there's a deep and quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. Maybe even in this retreat. Maybe my spot in the meditation hall. Or maybe my seat in the dining room. Maybe my walking path. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth, the inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, Concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, and equanimity. 
an inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and confusion that's generated through the conditioning, the training of accumulating and then fixing and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to into this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. It's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. And there's a a short sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya called Two People that I'd like to offer. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gotama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And we have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama, instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responds, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, and you have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. And then the Buddha goes on. This world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What is given is well salvaged. Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, Uh, There are three kinds of giving that are spoken of. There's what we could call beggarly giving, which is when uh, we give with only one hand, so to say, still kind of holding on to what we give. It's still mine. (laughs) How I actually first began uh, giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. And in this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have. And maybe afterwards we might even wonder whether we should have given it all. The second kind of giving can be called friendly giving. 
and we give open-handedly with both hands and we share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. Then there's what is called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of whatever has been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. So in this, there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. Eighth-century Buddhist monk Shantideva said this, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. There's nothing to be held onto in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. And some words from Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as you well know, we don't always live with the purity and completeness of queenly and kingly generosity. This is at least in part one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with yourself, to honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way and not to pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image that you may have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect your limits along the way and come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity or unconditional kindness and compassion, when in fact we may be acting out of fear of loss or maybe fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we may give from a place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or a particular situation. 
giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and delusion, strengthening the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which in turn causes suffering in ourself and maybe in the other person as well. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency, rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not-self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet feel the simple okayness about being here, meaning an okayness about being alive in this life, just simply because here you are. Here we are, alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, and an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness, this must be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing and caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feelings of lack, there may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We might give ourself away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way in what seems like general support, generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving or unskillful support of others. When this happens, we actually feel less whole, more depleted and weaker, which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance of the real needs of others, along with a lack of awareness of our own needs. It's important to understand, respect, and honor in ourself and in others that the wisdom of a deep and true generosity develops and matures gradually. In relationship to this, on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote this, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. 
to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to learn to earn the appreciation of honest critics and to endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. Our inclination to feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness. And our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and know the freedom that's inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. And just for a moment or two, looking at the practice of generosity from another perspective. There's a practice that uh, a Tibetan teacher told me about, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving uh, even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive it uh, graciously if it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically sick or distressed emotionally. So the practice for this is to take something very ordinary, something like that one might not think is particularly valuable, maybe a potato or a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand. And you just pass it back and forth, from hand to hand, your own hands, back and forth, until it gets easy, until you don't feel foolish. (laughs) And then there are the higher practices. And if one is motivated, inclined to continue the practice of generosity uh, and relinquishment, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally, and the giving uh, symbolically develops into letting go of or relinquishing, offering everything. All of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations and the inner accumulations of habits, 
preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings, whatever those might be. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point, many years ago, I did this practice. But instead of precious jewels, rice was the offering, which actually felt uh, quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without all of the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear, concentrated, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, appreciation, humility, and equanimity, with unconditional acceptance we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated, mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body to any task we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way to its death. We're learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy, and that this is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all of these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi responded, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us, and we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. So I'd like to close the talk this evening with another story. About 35 years ago now, 
along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, <clears throat> he would come to the area of Michigan where I lived to teach us. And one year I invited him to come and stay in my house, uh, the house that burned down that I mentioned in my Anicca talk. And it was a small, very old five-room log home <clears throat> out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just one of my sons and I were living there. So the summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. And he's quite a big man, about six foot three, uh, big boned. And he looked even bigger in his uh, cowboy boots and tall cowboy hat. And then it was like one of those cars <coughs> in the circus that pulls up in the center ring and the doors open and people just keep pouring out of it. <laughs> and you're amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. So as my son and I watched, um, seven people emerged from this little car, Wallace's helpers and members of his family. And it turned out there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And I thought, oh, how will we all live and sleep in this tiny house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. And people were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop in in the afternoon to meet with and to listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the ecology center until about 12.30 a.m. Then it was time for a big dinner because no meals were to be taken through the afternoon and evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and many of my habits. How I use the various spaces uh, in my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, food preferences, and lots of other preferences. Wallace and one of his family members uh, smoked cigarettes continuously in my no-smoking house. <laughs> and people, as I mentioned, slept all over the house, all over the place. The day would begin late in the morning with the late night, because of the late night sweat lodge ceremonies. At that time, during those ceremonies, 1 a.m. was dinner time. And each afternoon, the house was filled with about 15 or 20 people who had come by to listen to Wallace share uh, teachings in his very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats, and there were bowls of food at the door or left on the kitchen counter. And then often a friend and I, who was uh, involved with all of this, would be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night, Wallace and his friends said that they, they wanted to do a ceremony, a, a, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. As we all sat together in a circle, each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship 
to our 10 days together. And then they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for us sharing our space, our time, and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke. He said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in that that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next day in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car. It was kind of like watching a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us, my son and I, walked back into the house and we stood there in amazement. The seemingly great expanse of our home holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk. And yet, somehow, internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk this evening with a poem called Goldenrod, written by Mary Oliver. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citron and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that is better than these light-filled bodies? All day, on their airy backbones, they toss in the wind, They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness in the pure peace of giving one's gold away. And let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.